Amid the scuttling alley creatures, far from any friends or preachers, lies a girl with pallid features, made magic by moon glow and whispered lore. Her eyes like stars, though fixed, still glitter. Her smile, once sweet, has now gone bitter. Her hair fans out over day-old litter, a song that sings in paradox of the famed Madonna whore. We ought to cry but can't stop talking. We ought to stop but just keep walking. Ought look away but can't stop gawking. Dashing death and lovely girls oft have a strong rapport. This howling snapshot barely captures the life she had and bore. So when you speak her name, remember the truth at this tale's core. The beautiful dead stir fantasies that make the poets roar. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. I can't yeah. rhyme. It takes me forever, and then I can't read right. <laughs> you, you did great. Thank you. <laughs> you know, sometimes I give myself helpful little prompts for the opening. Like, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. To make writing, like, easier. Things like write a poem about a pretty dead girl in the style of Edgar Allan Poe. And then I realized six hours later that I have given myself a super difficult assignment that oh, has to no. rhyme. <laughs> Good times. So it sounds like Poe on purpose, guys. I'm not just really bad at my job. Yeah. (laughs) I thought it was great. I love a Poe poem. Excellent. Sorry. Poem. John gets mad because he doesn't think I say poem right, but I hear myself saying poem, but I just say poem. You say poem. But I hear myself saying poem. Oh, really? Yeah. I just say it fast. Oh. So. Weird. I don't. Yeah. I wonder what the disconnect is there where you hear it right, but don't say it right. Yeah. It's, it's like just slight. Yeah. You know, it's like when you mm-hmm. say your state a different way than other yeah. people. Like, Interesting. Or like, how do you say the waxy um, writing implement that kindergartners use? Crayon. And they're crayons. Yeah. Some people call them crowns. That's not right. It goes on your head. Yeah. Crowns for a king. Yeah. I just say crayons, but then like crayons would be the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You pronounce it like exactly how it's spelled. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have time for that, Holly. <laughs> I know. You gotta just like... You know what I'm saying. I do Get know what you're it. saying. I mean, <laughs> I understand what people are saying when they say crowns too, but I, I think of them differently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you get crown out of crayon? I don't know. Anyway. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. <laughs> so this week's case had my literary heart all aflutter. I was so excited. Today, we're talking about the mysterious death of Mary Cecilia Rogers, otherwise known as the beautiful cigar shop girl. Oh. Yes. Fun fact. Yes. That was my nickname. You're so lucky. (laughs) Oh, boy. Back when I was 19, I worked at a cigar shop, and that's what all the boys called me. Oh, boy. (laughs) What a good time. (laughs) Not this. You didn't have this time, thankfully. No, no. Yeah, I had a better time. (laughs) <laughs> way better time yeah. than this girl did. 
I guess for a little while she had a great time, but it ended badly. Now, when it happened, this case was huge news, really big news. It's about a missing white girl, after all. So of course it was, right? Mm -hmm. But the reason it has stood the test of time is because it also served as the inspiration for Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Mystery of Marie Rogette. I believe you pronounced the T. We all thought you didn't in French. And then all of a sudden people were like, it's Moet. And then we all realized we were wrong. Oh. Yeah, it's fun. So if it's Roger, I'm sorry. This story is a sequel to the story The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is widely considered to be the first detective story ever published. And when I say inspired by, I mean Poe used this exact story, but he changed her name a little bit changed the location from New York to Paris, and then changed it from a cigar store to a perfume shop. Everything else is dead accurate. All right. Yeah. I like it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, in this way, we could probably say that Poe was also one of the first true crime writers, which I bet you guys didn't know, did you? Well, maybe you did. You are here, and that's something you're probably into, so. Yeah, for sure. A few of you are surprised, though. (gasps) You're welcome. We guess. What? <gasps> you don't say. I, I do say. Our little Poe? <laughs> yes, our a little tr- Edgar. A true crime writer? Who knew? My, my. So that's pretty interesting, right? Yeah. It's interesting enough to make us want to know more and to consider this topic for an episode. It's been on my list for actually almost about a year at this point. But once you peel back the winterific layers of glamorous horror, you'll find this case is so much more. And so important to specifically talk about right now. Okay. Also, I'm going to temporarily bring back word of the week because I just said one that was too good not to call attention to. This week's word is winnerific. Ah! Ah! <laughs> Which means beautiful and scary at the same time. I love it. Right? It's Winner- a really good winnerific? one. What? Winnerific. Winnerific, yeah. Winnerific. It's, a, it's like a beautiful nightmare, if you will. Okay. Use it everywhere. I know I will. I want a shirt that says whimsically winnerific. Okay. Because that is truly all I want to be in this world. <laughs> <laughs> She's whimsical and so pretty, but also scary. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but in order to wear the winnerific mantle, I think my skin will need a little rejuvenation. For sure. The weather has been so weird and sporadic here in New Jersey. It's cold. It's hot. It's cold. It's hot again. It rains for 10 weeks straight and then gale force winds blow hail at your face when you're just trying to get your Amazon order off the freaking porch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a lot, you guys. I know. And I'm looking a little ragged. How are you? How are you doing, Leslie? How's your skin holding up over there? I'm looking more nightmare than beauty. For sure. Gotta balance that winterific (laughs) stuff out. Well, there is still hope for a winterific girl summer. Tell me what I want. I've heard we can regain our youthful glow by breathing in the vapors of a few concentrated drops of validation, a hill worth dying on. Yes, I have heard that it's a hill worth dying on. It sure is, Holly. (sighs) And tell us more about it. I will. As luck would have it, our fiends can help us with this. Oh. Isn't that exciting? It's so exciting. I know. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a moment, but it is integral for the survival of this podcast. We haven't gotten any in a little while, so I figured I would, like, up the ante. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Life or death. Yeah. (laughs) 
And if you want a little more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you'll gain access to our weekly after show, which is also video, post-mortem, which we will get back to this week. We did take a little bit of a time off because I couldn't sit in a chair for too long. Holly, we did it last week. We did it last week. We sure did. Look, I can't remember. That's how fucked I was last week. Yeah, remember we were gonna we talked about our um our new sex. Oh right. <laughs> oh boy, I still wanna do that. What was it? Like a like a sex topic show, right? It was okay, guys. I'm gonna pitch you this <laughs> and I want you all to I need you to respond to whether you would listen to it or not. If we had a podcast called I'll Say It When My Parents Are Dead, <laughs> we brought parents, we brought parents, we brought people on to talk about like events that they can only publicly talk about once their parents are dead. Yeah. <laughs> would you listen? It, this isn't an interview show, too. We would talk. We would tell our own experiences as well, mm-hmm. but we would bring, bring other people on and they'd be anonymous every week. No one mm-hmm. would tell their name. It would just be a person and they'd yeah. be like, I snuck out and had sex with my boyfriend in a parking lot. Or like, I told my parents I was going to study marine biology, but really I went to a three-day rave. Like, (laughs) But like, those are whimsical examples. Right. There is so much more. Well, this came after Holly and I were really awkward about talking about anything sex-related, and that was funny. And I thought we should do it more in front of people. Yeah. (laughs) Because... We're so bad at it. Well, listen, if you're very confused, if you become a patron, you could listen to this video or watch it. That I don't even remember recording because yeah. I was so, I was find in out so much back it. pain. Find out the origin of this possible podcast that my husband is terrified of us actually doing. Listen, <laughs> it would be interview based. Mm-hmm. We could also time it if we want to make it more like you can't. I'll save you the editing trouble. Yeah. It's an hour. It's all you get. I don't think he's worried about the editing, Holly. <laughs> Always worried about what you might say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he has to worry about no, what you might say. No, it'd be say. too awkward. Nobody would know what came out. They'd be like, I don't know what story she was trying to tell us. <laughs> okay, this is a huge diversion, you guys, but I'm yeah. serious. Please, please, please tell us if this is something you would listen to or if you have a secret. Mm. Um, I'll be collecting secrets now. It's fine. Just saying. I don't I don't know that we'll do this. Oh, I don't know that we will either, but I, I I'm curious to hear what people have to say like, about I'm it. I'm already like itching. I'm uncomfortable. But it's not even you. I know. I'm uncomfortable for everyone else. You're uncomfortable on their behalf. I know. Bless. Well, anyway, that was a big long diversion. Um you'll get host mortem, which sometimes I remember recording. You'll also get all of the episodes of our extra podcast, 30-minute horror movies. If you liked Twilight, there's a whole lot more where that came from. There's also extra patrons-only mini-sodes. You'll get a special gift in the mail from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media, especially Instagram, who is currently the queen bee of the socials. We are at Pod everywhere. If you are already a follower, you can share our stuff, like a post, like Every post, no one's stopping you. Post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the most attractive retail worker you see tomorrow. What's their name? Hmm. Walk into three stores, one person, super hot. Who are they? That would be, oh my God, I think of a good one. Too many names are flooding, but I think I use them already. He's a hot name. (laughs) (laughs) Forest. Forest. All right. Then your friends, 
and Forrest can become fiends and we can all hang out together and we all want to hang out with Forrest. Oh, we sure do. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, a super quick and easy way to give us a little validation is to buy a single serving on, what is this, Buy Me a Coffee? What is this website called? Yes, Buy Me a Coffee. Buymeacoffee.com, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. Leslie did this because she's a genius. It's on, our, it's on our link tree. It's on just... our link tree. So <laughs> click on that. This allows you to make a one-time donation, but you can do it as many times as you like. And then you bask in the glory of our love and devotion forever. Yes, thank you. It's warm there. So warm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that is all I have for this week. I'm less dead, so we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Leslie, is there anything you'd like to add before we begin? I got nothing. As per usual. All right, then. On with the show. Mary Cecilia Rogers was born in 1820 in Lyme, Connecticut. Do you know where Lyme is? It's a terrible name for a town. Um, no, I don't think I specifically do. I didn't pick it out geographically, but it's been around since the 1600s. Like Lyme disease? That's what I thought. Is this the origin point of Lyme disease? But it doesn't appear to be. Like limestone, probably, is my guess. Anywho, Mary was born to her mother, Phoebe, and her father, James Rogers. Thank God we got Connecticut in there. It's been like a week since we mentioned it. Lyme is also the birthplace of an impressively long list of other known entities, none of whom I have ever heard of before. Okay. So you can look them up if you like and make fun of me because I don't know who they are. But this isn't really our concern because the Rogers family did not stay in Lyme forever, nor did they have any experiences that seemed noteworthy while they were there. Mm -hmm. At some point, it is not documented when, the family uh, of three moved from Lyme to New York City, which was considerably more exciting. Mary's mother ran a boarding house, and her father did some kind of unspecified men's work. He probably needed a boy. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just doing a man's work. It involved traveling. (laughs) Okay. He's very busy. In 1837, Mary's father, James, died in a steamboat explosion. Oh, no. I know. Which feels insane, but every time we cover something old-timey, there's a footnote about a small supporting character dying in a very strange way. Yes. So it's pretty hard to surprise me at this point. Yep. Side note, it is also possible that Mary and Phoebe moved to New York after James's death. Mary's life before the cigar store is extremely underreported, and there are no official documents substantiating this move or even her birth date. Hmm. This is all, like, through other reports. Like, oh, this was in a bunch of newspaper articles from back then, but we don't have, like, birth certificates or anything. Okay. After James's death, Mary, being the only child, helped her mother in the boarding house, of course, but also set to finding a job of her own so she could help with the financial burden her mother came to face. As luck would have it, Mary was tracked down by a tobacco shop shop owner named John Anderson, who was very interested in hiring her. Was she extremely knowledgeable about cigars? Was she? No. Neither was I. Mm. Was she an expert in sales? Was she? No. Neither was I. Did she possess an uncanny ability to organize bins and shelves? Did she? No. no. Neither was I. <laughs> That's for sure. You see me organized. It's not good. It's better than me, unless I'm on a tear and then I'm good at it. No, Mary was a desirable employee for Mr. Anderson because she was very, 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 very beautiful. So was I. There you go. (laughs) And at that time, 
This was the most important quality for a cigar store employee. Maybe still at this time, I guess. Yeah, I would say so. You see, tobacco shops were the meeting place of primarily at at this time. You can tell me if this is still true. Primarily well-to-do men. Or men that felt they were well-to-do. That is a fair assessment. (laughs) More often than not, in this place and time, they were newspaper men and respected authors. Mm. Probably not quite so much at the one you worked at. Yes, no. (laughs) But we are talking about New York City in this story. Mm -hmm. And the one thing all these newspaper men seemed to like more than a good cigar was a pretty girl. A pretty girl at the counter could drive sales through the roof, and Mary was more than pretty. She was legendarily beautiful. Mm. This is like a Helen of Troy situation. At first, when Mr. Anderson approached Mary, she declined his offer, and some reports say that he asked her mother first. And her mother was like, I don't know if she needs to work in a cigar shop. But when he told Mary or her mother, whichever version you'd like to believe, about the substantial salary she would be making, these women were very well paid. Mm -hmm. She rethought things in a hurry. Nice. Within a few weeks of her employment beginning, Anderson's Liberty Street cigar shop became routinely packed. Mary was better than John Anderson had ever imagined, and not only because she was beautiful, but she was also charming and flirty and witty, but also modest. Mm. Yeah, Mary would flirt and make, like, eyes at customers. Mm -hmm. A lot of them said they would come in the shop just to make eye contact with her. Okay. Why does no one say this about me? I don't know. And my wall-eyed, awkward eye contact. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, which one is looking at me? (laughs) All of the serious advances that came at her, though, from customers were always declined. So she might flirt with these people, Mm -hmm. but she never, like, went home with them or went on dates with them. It was just shop talk. Okay. Mm -hmm. So basically, she was a perfect 1840s woman. Right. This this was my life. Yeah, I love you. I'm so beautiful, but you can't have me. You can't have me. Perfect. (laughs) Men could not get enough of her, as you well know. Yeah. (laughs) And Anderson's sales went through the roof. Mm -hmm. There are, mind you, also rumors that John Anderson wanted Mary for himself, but she denied him as well. Though this may have hurt his pride a little bit, one cannot just fire a golden goose like Mary. As time passed, Mary's reputation only grew. This is a good reputation, not a bad reputation. A poem dedicated to her beauty was published in the New York Herald. I cannot find a copy of this poem. I tried really hard, but it was there. Well-known writers like James Fenimore Cooper and Washington Irving would stroll down from their offices to the tobacco shop on their breaks just to spend a moment with Mary. Mm -hmm. The beautiful cigar shop girl was the topic of much conversation. She was sought after by every man in the city. She was written about dreamed about, rhapsodized about, and adored. Many considered Mary to be the first New York City it girl. Without any particular skills or talents, Mary set the standard of being famous simply for being famous. Okay. Mm-hmm. She was the first one of those. Okay. Boy, thanks. A little socialite. Mm-hmm. But what is an it girl without controversy? Mm. Am I right? Uh, yeah. They gotta have some drama. For sure. Can't just be like a Kardashian with no problems. Less interesting. It's true. In 1838, Mary Rogers, the cigar girl with the, quote, dainty figure and pretty face, went out one afternoon and did not come home. Mm. I know. Mary's mother looked around for clues as to where she might be, and in doing so, she discovered what appeared to be a suicide note in Mary's room. The New York Sun reported that the coroner had examined the letter and concluded that the author had a, quote, 
fixed and unalterable determination to destroy herself. So apparently Mary's mother brought it to the newspaper because everyone was interested in everything Mary did. Hmm. But a few days later, Mary returned home alive and well. She didn't understand what all the fuss was about because as it turns out, she was merely visiting a friend in Brooklyn. Why did she write this alleged suicide note? Well, she didn't say. But many speculated that the whole thing was orchestrated by the New York Sun for publicity and that John Anderson, her boss at the cigar shop, would also see a financial gain in this situation when Mary returned, was in on the whole thing. Weird. Yeah. Well, not too weird. They made up this big scandal. They would sell newspapers and more people would come into the cigar shop when she came back to see her. Okay. So, again, we're setting a standard here, you guys. One that would eventually give us reality TV. Hmm. And there was a pretty good reason for people to suspect the sun. The New York sun was no stranger to controversy. Just a few years prior, in 1835, the sun published a series of articles that later became known as the Great Moon Hoax. Oh. I know. The series began on August 25th, 1835, and the articles were about the supposed discovery of life and even civilization on the moon. <gasps> what? I know. The discoveries were falsely attributed to Sir John Herschel, one of the best-known astronomers of that time. Now, this was, of course, all a great big giant lie, but it also greatly improved sales for the sun even after the truth came out. And so this sort of thing, my dear fiends, is where tabloids and gossip magazines took their inspiration from. Leslie, would you like to give us a little more about gossip? A little history, a little background, a little lesson? Yeah, sure. Thank you, beautiful cigar shop girl. Yeah, thank you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, originally Holly asked me to write... Uh, something else. Something else from <laughs> Lily. She wanted me to talk about like like historical, like like famous historical gossip girls. Yes. And all that came up in my search was stuff about Blake Lively and Lee Meester. Well, you can't use from, the term gossip girl. I know, but I, I tried other things. Okay. <laughs> it was just really funny. It was just a lot of gossip girl oh, boy. facts. Um, but then I, as I was, you know, figuring out the correct search terms, yep. I uh, fell upon the actual history of where the word gossip comes from. I love and I history. Was, I was blown away. Give it to us. So did you know that the word gossip dates back to the 12th century and is from the Old English noun godsib? So G-O-D-S-I-B-B. I do now. Broken down, the word is composed of god and the adjective sib, meaning akin or related. Like a sibling? Yeah. And then that was like added later. The original sense of gossip was one who has contracted spiritual affinity with another by acting as a sponsor at baptism. So gossip or gossip is what we call godfather or godmother now. Huh. Interesting. And gossip in, uh, extended to meaning any close family friend or acquaintance. And then in the late Middle Ages, people hosted friendship meetings to talk and chatter about whatever happened within the last time of their meeting. Oh, my God. Friendship meeting. Yeah, I know. I loved it. They discussed all sorts of things from life partners to political issues that only the cycle would usually know about. And this wasn't gender exclusive, though sometimes the men would be like in one room while the women were in another room. And these would be termed like they would be meet, meeting with their, like, close friends and families who they would consider, like, like a gossip person, you know, like that. That was, was their gossip. It was a nice thing. Mm -hmm. They were like your 
your um person you tell things to. You're just your friend. Yeah. But the term gossip in the 16th and 17th century was starting to be associated more with women as the women who were pres- mm-hmm. as like the women who were present in the birthing rooms were known as gossips. So that's like what you would call them. It wasn't originally derogatory. They were just called gossips. So ideally, midwives were responsible for delivering children. These were generally older women who had trained under another midwife and had already experienced childbirth themselves. But a mother-to-be often invited a small group of women, including close friends and family members known as gossips, to support her through the birthing process. And men started referring to the quote-unquote useless chatter that the women engaged in while in that room as gossip. Ew, I'm already mad. So in very simple terms, men started to separate themselves from the term gossip because they believed that they could never engage in idle, useless chatter because they were too busy for that, whereas women were jobless and had no other matters to worry about, so whatever they had to say to each other must be useless or damaging. So for women, gathering together to quote-unquote gossip was therapeutic and a bonding agent within their community. It was also something that, like, they were supposed to do. It's like what they were told to do originally. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is good for you to do that. And then immediately the men were like, we don't like it. We're not in on this, so it's We don't like it. Anthropologists will say that gossip was a tool for self-preservation and sympathy in a uh, patriarchal society where they were granted little power and say. Yeah. Especially when most women were not allowed to work and were meant to be home all day. This was a chance to communicate with a real person and with women who understood their life. Unfortunately, sometimes these gossip sessions could cause some drama in the town or in other homes. But regardless of what was talked about, men just like didn't like it, you know. Of course. So society devised many tortures and punishments to control women from gossiping. Ugh. So till the 1800s in Europe and colonial America, it was very common for men to request the state or church to punish those who talked too much or tried to form any sort of bonds with other women. Even widows or old women and those abandoned by their husbands were banished from talking too much. They weren't allowed to talk about their experiences and sorrows. Even comforting each other was seen as a waste of time. Back in 1547, there was a proclamation that was issued forbidding women to meet together to babble and talk. I hate everything. <laughs> yeah, guys, all, you know what? The only thing we talk about is how small all your dicks are. Yep, Good thing you shut us up. <laughs> that's all I ever say. And in this proclamation, they ordered husbands to keep their wives in their houses. Female friendships were one of the targets of the witch trials. As in the course of the trials, accused women were forced under torture to denounce each other. Friends turning in friends, daughters turning in their mothers. That's where we start, like, having to kind of stab each other in the back. Just turn us against each other and then we destroy Mm -hmm. each other. And we just keep doing it. (laughs) Because we can't stop talking about your tiny dicks. (laughs) So punishment, like uh, the scolds brutal, which Holly's talked about before. Bridal. Is that a bridle? Yeah, like a horse bridle because it goes in your mouth. Okay. Um, So scolds, bridle, the death by drowning, and sometimes death by fire were used against women. 
These punishments were made for women who not only gossiped, it was also made for women who tried to stand up for themselves or questioned authority. The most popular one was the scolds bridal. 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 Like here comes the bride. <laughs> okay. Used on women upon the request of their husbands and or family members. The scolds bridal, also called the gossip bridal, Brinks bridal, or witch's bridal, was an iron muzzle in an iron framework that enclosed the head. It came from the headpiece that riders would put on horses to better control them during their rides. Bridal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a bridal bit, uh, which is about two inches by one inch in size, was slid into the mouth and pressed down on the top of the tongue, often like a spike on the tongue as a compress. It functioned to silence the rarer from speaking entirely and caused extreme pain and psychological trauma to scar and intimidate the ro- the wearer into submission and if the wearer attempted to move her mouth bits of her flesh could be torn out yeah they have big spikes in them you can see uh, i'll I'll include photos in this week's photo suite i have i have included photos of these in the past Mm -hmm. and we talked about this when we did i think eastern state because they used a very similar device on prisoners Mm -hmm. for talking because remember the prison had to be quiet yep so Mm -hmm. it's a very similar thing yeah but um yeah you could just Mm -hmm. ask that your wife have it they could also be sentenced to it if there were, like, oh, yeah. people yep. in the town square. Yeah. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that wasn't enough of a punishment, the husbands would attach bells to their wives' uh, bridal and have them led along long walks through the streets to the so that the community could see them and in, in their gossiping sins. It's like a shame, shame, shame yes. bell. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are so much artwork depicting this, too. I'll yeah. make sure I find some for you guys. And luckily, by the late 1600s, this method this method of punishment was mostly obsolete for, like, specifically gossipy right. women. And then in the 19th and 20th century, the concept of gossip as a negative thing associated with women strengthened even more. The negative connotation of women's idle talk or tattle became so entrenched that even today when women talk about anything, especially about other women, they are labeled as catty, bitchy, or spiteful. And the fun truth is that statistics show that men gossip just as much as women do. Yeah, they do. But when men gossip, it's seen as discussing something more important and is often called networking, lobbying, or meeting to discuss important topics. Or talking shit. That's what you're doing. Yeah. About your tiny, tiny dicks. (laughs) So what infuriates me most is that we are still living in a time where we as women can decide to fuck the patriarchy and build stronger bonds with each other. Does gossip sometimes turn into major drama that hurts others? Yes, that's not the gossip that we are talking about here, though. There are drama starters for sure, but gossip between a group of women is and can be safe place to connect, shoot the shit, share ideas and support, and have a laugh, especially about how Judy just got her eyebrows tinted, and it's a couple of shades too dark, and now her four-year-old can't stop crying whenever she sees her because mommy looks like Dracula. Whew. I just had to get that out. Thank God. <laughs> Next time I see Judy, oh boy, I'm going to stare oh hard. boy. <laughs> then I'm going to talk also, about her husband's. Right. Tiny, tiny, tiny. But also, these gossip meetings could be like where women come together and we like, I don't know, have a safe place to discuss like the stock market and learn and like learn together how to like do finances sure. and all these things or, that like is hard to do with sometimes with a group of men. Or pressing issues that involve the men and how they are treating you. Right. That's not mm-hmm. a safe that's not safe to discuss in the company of those men. Or how many times have you and I sat with um 
other females and we've figured out that they either need to get another doctor's opinion or something else is wrong or so many times, you know, like, hey, this is probably what's happening. I can't believe no one's told you this for 30 years. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's um, it's important to have this. We shouldn't isolate each other. Absolutely. Yeah. So don't let anyone make you think gossiping's bad. Yeah. Go talk shit with your friends. Yeah. It's fun. It's therapeutic. It is therapeutic. Science said so. Yeah. If husbands want us to be happy, that's what we need to do. I need to get this shit out somewhere. Yeah, we do. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to talk about them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, I I was trying to find some really fun, like, big gossipy cases in the mm-hmm. past, but I just kept finding this history, and I thought it was very interesting because I'd never heard it. I love a history. Portrayed this way because I, I am one to say, like, I hate gossip, and now I'm going to be like, I love it. I love it all. <laughs> you say you hate gossip people because you're uneducated. Yeah. I know you know better. <laughs> yeah. You love gossip. I'll send you some links. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's some literature. Yeah. You read it. Well, so thank you. Now I want to know the gossip in this story. I want to know the gossip everywhere all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So thank you, Leslie. That was fun. After the smoke from her dramatic and apparently very no- newsworthy disappearance had dissipated, Mary went right back to selling cigars and being everybody's dream girl. But she couldn't stay single forever, and in 1841, she became engaged to a man named Daniel Payne, who was a cork cutter. Cut corks. Nice. What a fun time. The pair met at Mary's mother's boarding house, where Daniel was also living at the time. Now, there are rumors that this was not Mary's first engagement, which I actually do not doubt. Most beautiful woman in the whole wide world. Of course, people are probably proposing left and right but I simply don't have any official documents to prove it. Mm. So, on Sunday, July 25th, 1841, Mary told her mother and her fiancé that she was heading over the river and through the woods to New Jersey. Yes. To visit some relatives. She said she wasn't going to stay for too long. She'd be back the next day. So Mary left that evening as planned, but that night a summer storm blew in, like one of those particularly violent thunderstorms, like a crazy summer storm. And if you don't live in a place with seasons, I'm sorry. We get particularly (laughs) bad ones in the summertime sometimes. So when Mary wasn't back by morning, nobody was too concerned. They figured that this insane storm they had the night before had interfered with travel and that she would be along shortly. Nothing too concerning. But when Monday came and went, by nightfall, Mary's mother became worried. So worried, in fact, the next morning she put an ad in the sun again asking that anyone who had seen or been in contact with Mary since Sunday, Sunday like evening or late afternoon, contact her right away as, quote, it is supposed that some accident has befallen her. Now, Mary's mother did not suspect foul play at this time. Rather, she suspected that Mary had simply run into misfortune trying to travel during a storm and wound up stranded or perhaps she had taken a spill while in New Jersey and found herself unable to travel. There are not a lot of phones back then, so she couldn't really quickly contact anyone um, had this or any other emergency been the case. And after all, we never want to immediately assume the worst, so we can't blame her mother for making rationale of everything. Though maybe the sun wasn't the best place to get in touch with, given their propensity for sensationalism, but that's going to come back to bite us in the ass later. Mm. Two more days passed with no word from Mary. And then, on July 28th, a lovely day by all accounts, 
a few men had gone out for a walk by Sybil's cave, which sounds like maybe the most fun place in the world. Sybil's cave was created in 1832 by the Stevens family when they discovered that there was a natural spring in a cave on their property. They just had a cave. Nice. I mean, like, they are living the dream. Yeah. So what did they do? They did what everyone should do, and they built large gothic gates onto the cave, set up a restaurant next to it, and made the whole thing a park. (laughs) That's amazing. I fucking love them. Visitors could pay for a meal or just a cool glass of water from the spring. Okay. Or you could just sit and enjoy. That's so cool. Yeah. You could go in those gates and look at the cave. The spring (laughs) was there. This all sounds delightful for me, and I desperately want to hang out there. Yeah. I think you can still go there. I think it's still there. Okay. Um, anyway, these nice gentlemen, their names were Henry Mullen and James Bollard, to be specific, in case you know them. They were out walking by this awesome cave when they spotted something in the water. So they did what anyone would do, or what just they did, because I don't think I would. They grabbed a rowboat and went to see what it was. I don't know if I'd be like, I got to get out there in that water and see that thing. It could be anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, they did. And what they found was the waterlogged body of a young girl. They dragged the girl into the boat, paddled her to shore, and 1840s style called the damn cops, which means someone definitely just ran into the distance to find a cop. Yeah. (laughs) They were just like, police, all is not well. (laughs) And someone came. So while um, these two gentlemen waited... A small crowd began to form, a small crowd that rapidly turned into a large crowd, obviously. They were at this awesome cave. Everyone's going to be there and everyone's going to come see what happened. And then somehow the word of this body's discovery made its way to a man who has been described as a former fiancé of Mary's. Again, this is a description of this man only. There is no paperwork or announcements or anything that can confirm this, but we're just going to go with it. One source reports that this was a man named Alfred Cromelin a law clerk to whom she had once been engaged, but the two had broken off the engagement and remained amicable, which is the most unbelievable part of this whole episode. Yeah. In my opinion, but I digress. Alfred may well have been an ex-fiancé. Either way, he made his way down to the riverbank and identified Mary's body because when he heard the news, he suspected that since she had gone missing without a trace, there was a chance this could be her. When he was right, then the media circus began. Mm. Newspapers loved this shit. The man who pulled Mary from the river said that the body was, to quote their interview in the New York Post, quote, perfectly free, without rope, cord, or anything attached to it. There were no rings, breast pin, or any other jewelry on her person. Okay. So, nothing too alarming, aside the fact that it's a body. But she wasn't, she didn't have, like, she was, like, tied up, didn't have anything that made them immediately frightened or whatever. Mary's body was then taken to Richard Cook, the coroner for Hoboken, New Jersey, a man who seemed to know an opportunity when he saw one. Mm. Richard Cook examined Mary's body and testified about the state of it. Richard gave all sorts of dramatic and colorful details, which made her death play out like a horrifying dramatic fantasy, which is very well what this might have been. But newspapers all over the country tripped over themselves to print what he had to say. And here it is in its entirety, in his own words. Quote, The face was suffused with dark blood, bruised blood. There was frothy blood still issuing from the mouth. 
Her face was swollen. There was an ecchymose mark about the size and shape of a man's thumb on the right side of her neck, near the jugular vein, and two or three ecchymose marks on the left side resembling the shape of a man's fingers, which led me to believe that she had been throttled, back then throttled and strangled, and partially choked by a man's hand. Both arms were bent over the chest and were so tight and stiff that we had to use some force to straighten them. The right hand was clenched and the left hand was partially open but rigid. It appeared as if the wrists had been tied together and as if she had raised her hand to try and tear something off her mouth and neck, which was choking and strangling her. The hands had been tied probably while the body was violated and untied before she was thrown into the water. There was a considerable excoriation upon the top of the back and both shoulder bones by the young girl struggling to get free while being brutally held down on her back to effect her violation. And it convinced me fully that the outrage was not affected on a bed. So this guy is saying in like a hundred million words that she was violently raped. Mm -hmm. The dress was much torn. The outer dress was torn. A long slip, say a foot wide, was torn from the bottom of the frock to the waist. The dress immediately beneath the frock and between the upper petticoat had a piece torn of, torn clean of this garment, so ripped off, was missing a piece, and about a foot or 18 inches in width. This piece was torn very evenly and with great care, commencing at the bottom of the garment. This same piece was afterwards tied around her mouth with a hard knot at the back of the neck, I think, to smother her cries. The piece of fine lace trimming before I spoke before of, I observed a crease around her neck. So he's saying, like, he thinks that, like, a line around her neck was caused by it. Mm -hmm. Passing my hand behind her ear, I accidentally felt a small knot and felt that a piece of lace, which I supposed to have the trimming of her lace collar, was tied so tightly round her neck as to have been hidden from sight in the flesh of her neck. This was tied in a hard knot under her left ear. This would have strangled her. So he's saying a piece of her collar is tied so tight it's embedded in her neck. But I also need everybody to remember, this is a body that was discovered in the water days after going missing. Mm -hmm. Anything with her clothes could have happened. Now, to me, it seems like this man is taking a lot of leaps. And some things he says just seem to have been plain made up. Why would the men who originally found her lie about seeing her tied up? They said specifically that she was not tied up. It's simple. They wouldn't. Right. But it it sounds like the coroner was saying that it looks like she had been tied up. In some regards. But he was also saying there was like still stuff around her neck and things. Okay, which they didn't. But then he was saying it's hidden in her neck, which is weird. Like, I don't, I think somebody would see that. Yeah, I do too. But the other thing is, like, given the amount of time, would her body be frozen in position that she was tied up in? Dead bodies only hold a position in specific amounts of time. Then they go slack. They're dead. You, There's no reason for you to stay in that position. Nothing's holding you there. Mm. Also, if she was dead enough to have, like, this black mottled face, how did she still have frothy blood coming out of her mouth? So I asked um, a forensic expert about this. And so you guys can wait with bated breath, and we will do an update, and I will let you know what he says. So um, we, we have talked to this, this gentleman before. He uh, is on Instagram under the Corpse Reviewer, and he is a medical examiner, and he knows what he's talking about. So 
Um, I'm pretty excited to hear what he has to say because I read this description and I was like, this seems like nonsense to me. It, right. it feels like this guy just want, really had this story he wanted to tell. And so he made this body tell this story. Um, but I could be wrong. Maybe everything he said seems to track and he was just saying what he needed to say. I don't know, but I will. Uh, we will update and get back okay. to you on that. There are also reports from, a, I believe, a different coroner who just who looked at her first. Again, this is only in a few sources that claim that she had her, quote, virtue intact. Okay. Something that would have presented, to be blunt, very different vagina. Right. <laughs> like, but there may be a few explanations in this mess yet. You just have to hang on. None of that changes the fact that Mary had become front page news and everyone had an opinion as to who was to blame for her supposed brutal murder. After all, the court of public opinion took everything this coroner said as gospel. Why wouldn't they? They did not think there was a hint of exaggeration there, even though it was immediately like quoted to newspapers. So based on these facts, most people thought that a gang of young thugs had seen Mary walking along and snatched her. Then they raped her, strangled her, and disposed of her body in the river. And that sounds logical. This is the theory that the newspapers liked the most. It's the one that was pushed by authorities for a while. Courts liked it. It was poised to be a scandal that rocked the nation. But there's just one problem with that. There are like a million facts to counter it. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, Mary had not gone immediately missing without a trace. No, a few people had actually seen her during the time she was unaccounted for, and they began to come forward. A stagecoach driver and another young man noticed Mary in Hoboken on Sunday, the 28th of July at approximately 3 p.m. Both men mentioned how beautiful she was, of course, and that they saw her leave uh, the ferry boat with a, quote, dark-complexioned young gentleman, and that the pair had taken off on a road that led to Weehawken. Nice. Okay, that's one. The next sighting of Mary Rogers was given by a woman named Frederica Loss, who was a tavern keeper. Now, remember, taverns back then were also a place where you could stay. She reported seeing Mary at her tavern about an hour later than these guys saw her, so like around four o'clock, in the company of the same, quote, young, dark-complexioned gentleman that the men had reported seeing her with at the ferry. So now two people, they saw her with this guy, kind of tan, whatever. Frederica had also said that Mary was affable and modest, and she sat down to drink some lemonade. Nice. Yeah. Delightful. Frederica said that she saw Mary leave the tavern on the arm of the gentleman she came in with and that the two walked off, quote, towards the hill. Okay. Then, according to the Raleigh, North Carolina Weekly Standard, Frederica said, quote, the rain came on and she, meaning Mary, took shelter in a small house or tavern near the roadside. Like your tavern or what? <laughs> Here, also, a parcel of rowdies came in. You guys, in 1841, they called, like, Youth and bad guys, rowdies. I love it. Bring it back, please. Yes. A parcel of rowdies came, drank, and were very insolent. Mary and companion, detained by the rain, did not leave the house till near or after dark. When they descended the hill, and when near the foot of it, another shower came on, it is believed that they took shelter under some bushes in the side of the hill, between two roads. And there, it is also believed that both of them were murdered, and the poor girl violated. Frederica said she heard what she calls a frightful screaming as of a young girl in great distress, partially choked and calling for assistance. 
As soon as she called out, there was a noise as of struggling and a stifled, suffering scream, and then all went still. When initially asked, uh, you heard someone screaming for help? Why didn't you do anything? Frederica said, you know, I thought it was an animal until I found out that this girl went missing. And then I realized it was probably a girl. Yeah, I'm giving the biggest eye roll. Yeah. Well, don't worry. I feel like that's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Yikes. And who was this mysterious man? Mm-hmm. And where was his body? If he was also killed, where's the body? We still don't know to this day who that man might have been. There was no identification ever made of him. No one came forward ever saying they knew him. And no body was ever found. But that is not the last we're going to hear from Mrs. Frederica Loss. Okay, great. Don't worry, she comes back two more times. Mm. Many people began to suspect Daniel, Mary's fiancé, was to blame, which is awful because he honestly did not do anything and had an airtight alibi. But people want to think what they want to think. And what they wanted to think of Daniel was one of three things. Either that he and Mary had had a fight and Mary wanted to end things, so Daniel killed her. Or Daniel wanted to end things, so Daniel killed her. Or that Mary had become pregnant and Daniel didn't want the baby, so he arranged for her to have an abortion. And that abortion killed her. Which is interesting. It's not interesting because Daniel did any of those things. He most certainly did not. It's interesting because the abortion bit is probably the truth. Right answer, wrong story. There were also those who suspected cigar shop owner John Anderson. Some people thought that he was in love with Mary and furious that he couldn't have her. Remember in the beginning, I mentioned that people thought he tried to, you know, tried to get her too. So in a rage that he couldn't have what he wanted, he killed her. Or people said that he had been having an affair with Mary and she ended up getting pregnant. So in effort to hide this affair, he sent Mary off to have an abortion. Mm. We're getting warmer. Okay. Let's keep going. Because the press wasn't done with this insane spectacle, things went even farther. After the autopsy, Mary Rogers was buried in Hoboken, but only for a short period of time because the coroner and the courts ordered her body to be exhumed for further identification. Now, this is an unpreserved body that had been in both water and the ground at this point. So I'm not sure what they thought they were going to find. And this is like weeks to a month later. This is time for decomposition. Right. But they sure did give the New York Evening Post a hell of a story. Quote, The body of this unfortunate girl was yesterday brought from Jersey to this city and deposited in the dead house in the park. The dead house would be like the morgue or whatever. And difficult would it be for the most imaginative mind to conceive a spectacle more horrible or humiliating to humanity. There lay what was but a few days back, the image of its creator, the loveliest of his works, now blackened and decomposed mass of putrefaction, painfully disgusting to sight and smell. Her skin, which had unusually fair, I don't believe in all the words, was now black her eyes so sunk in her swollen face as to have the appearance of being violently forced beyond the sockets, and her youth, which no friendly hand had closed in death, was distended as wide as the ligaments of the jaws would admit, and wore the appearance of a person who had died from suffocation or strangulation. So, in death, 
not more strangulation, just in laying in the ground, she made a face like she was getting strangled and her eyes bugged out. Mm-hmm. That happens, right? Yep. The remainder of her person was alike one mass of putrefaction and corruption on which the worms were reveling at their will. This is vile and unnecessary. Obviously, they didn't need yeah. to do any of that. A parade of gore and horror for the amusement of a city under the spell of a violently murdered beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. And it did nothing forensically. This did, exhuming her and, and describing her rotted away corpse did absolutely not one single thing for this case, but they did it anyway. A month or so later, Frederica comes back on the scene. Oh, good. What's hey, girl, hey. Say? Yeah. She reported that her sons, who had been out collecting sassafras bark. Nice. Charming. I love her details. I know. They were, they were doing this between two roads near the Hudson River. And there they discovered, quote, what appeared to be an area where a struggle had taken place as the ground was stamped about and there were broken branches and roots. Mm. Ah! One of the boys then found a woman's petticoat and a silk scarf, which were later identified as belonging to Mary Rogers. Okay. I know. The boys also discovered one of her gloves turned inside out and two pieces of her dress caught on a bushy briar that had apparently ripped off as she was dragged away by her assailant or assailants. Now, again, this is a narrative put into place by the losses. Right. Remember that. They also found Mary's parasol and pocket handkerchief with her initials embroidered on it in the hollow of a tree. Hmm. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah. Wow. This then brings us to October of 1841. Mary's unsolved murder has been front-page news for months. The graphic descriptions of her death and dead body are everywhere. So as you might imagine, it was a bit of a difficult time for anyone who actually knew and loved Mary, especially those the media turned their suspicious gaze on, like Daniel Payne. You see, just like any other big case, that we even the ones we see now, a lot of people came forward to confess to Mary's murder. Now, I wish I could tell you why this kind of thing happens, but I can't, though it does. A lot of times the explanation is they want attention. Okay. Near the end of September, so before October, obviously, a, quote, rowdy of confirmed rascality named James Finnegan. Love it. A line I sorely wish I had written, but I didn't. (laughs) Was arrested supposedly for Mary's murder. Now, it was said that he was wearing a ring that had belonged to Mary at the time of his arrest. So I guess he had very dainty little hands. Just a rowdy guy who wore a lady's ring. Okay. And Mary was little and dainty, so she had tiny Mm. little fingers. Okay. Police had also arrested two gang members in Albany, and one of them had confessed to the crime and implicated confirmed rascal (gasps) James Finnegan. They also admitted they had met Mary on the morning of her murder. So this is supposedly happening on Monday, I guess and had invited her to sail to Hoboken. They claimed the unsuspecting woman had gone with them. They had led her to shore, tied her up, then took turns raping her, strangled her, and then tossed her in the river. Yep. Unfortunately, though, James Finnegan had a reliable alibi, and so these men and their story were all dismissed. Why are you lying about that? No, it's disgusting. Exactly. And with that, the press turned on the police. Journalists used this swing and a miss to emphasize the ineptitude and corruption of the city's law enforcement and their inability to solve Mary's case. That is a quote. At the time, 
New York City's population of 320,000 was served by just one night watchman. All is well. (laughs) 100 city marshals, 31 constables, and 51 police officers. That is under 200 police officers for 320,000 people. Hmm. So the press turns on the police. They say they're not doing this well. And the press also still like their own theories. They like that it was gang violence. They just don't like that the police solved the gang violence wrong. They also like to think that it was Daniel, the fiance. Right. Who we have already proved it wasn't, but mm-hmm. they did not care. Okay. About Daniel. In the midst of this whirlwind turnaround by press and police, Daniel, who had become a staggering alcoholic since Mary's death, on October 7th, 1841, died by suicide, overdosing on laudanum that he had purchased at a local pharmacy. He was found on a bench near Sybil's cave, right by where Mary was found. Hmm. And he had a note with him that read, quote, To the world, here I am on the very spot. May God forgive me for my misspent life. And a lot of people like to take that as a confession. And a lot of people still think that to this very day. Mm. Is that what I think it was? No. Is that what you think it was? No. I no. think. Why? Put more info in there, Daniel. I know, man. So people vague. always make their suicides notes so vague. Like, tell us stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Gossip a little. I know. It's good <laughs> for you. I personally, I think Daniel was bullied by the press and anyone who latched on to the theory that he killed his fiance until he couldn't take it anymore. And that in combination with his grief and likely guilt for letting her go, this became too much for him to bear. And so he ended up taking his own life. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, like your fiance dies and then everyone is saying you killed them. Mm -hmm. That is brutal. Not only that, but the whole world is also vividly describing her rotting corpse. Right. Like you can't avoid that. I mean, I feel like that's a valid explanation. Mary's death ruined his life in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. So what happened? Did they solve the case? Did they? No. Another murder came along and the public forgot all about Mary. Mary? Mm -hmm. If you are interested, that murder was the murder of Samuel Adams, a printer, not the beer guy, supposedly by John C. Colt. And this murder took place on September 17th, 1841. John Colt was taken in like a couple weeks after that. So this is like the end of the people talking about Mary is overlapping directly. John Colt also ended up taking his own life in the end. Oh. hmm And that seems like it until... Oh. The November 1842 edition of Snowden's Ladies Companion. <gasps> oh, another lady companion. Another ladies book, Snowden's Ladies Companion which was like Gaudi's lady book, um, which sounds like an escort service or at the very least a vibrator, but is really just a literary magazine hit the shelves. All literary magazines were for only women back then. Hmm. But we were supposed to be dumb. But we're the ones who are reading. Yeah. Well done. Um, So this frivolous thing. Yes. (laughs) And it is where true crime started, which we will find out in a second. Um, This volume had published the second installment of a new kind of story, one that featured a detective trying to solve a shocking crime. 
The story was called The Mystery of Marie Rogette and was written by a not super well-known at the time, Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Poe had been published in a handful of literary magazines and served as an assistant editor and then eventually editor in a couple more literary magazines. But his cousin-slash-child bride had not yet died slowly of consumption, so he hadn't really hit his stride. That really informs all of his influential work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The mystery of Marie Rogette was the story of a beautiful young woman who worked in a perfume shop in Paris. Marie was known far and wide for being extremely beautiful, and one day she was discovered dead in the Seine, which is a river, you guys. <laughs> Marie's story is told through the investigation of Detective Auguste Dopin, though the narrator is his nameless assistant. This is a very pre-Holmes and Watson, Holmes and Watson situation. Right. Detective Dupin thinks that the newspapers have created a sensation out of the mystery of Marie's death, and that has distracted them from the actual pursuit of the killer. It seemed to him that people were more interested in a good story than actual facts. And this is still true for the record. To this end, Detective Dupin uses these sensational reports to try and get into the mind of Marie's killer. The most popular theory in the world of this story was that Marie was killed by a young gang of ruffians. But Detective Dupin thinks this is just a convenient line of thinking. Detective Dupin then goes on to use a few little-known facts and details to determine that there was only one killer and lead the police to that person successfully. Hooray! Poe fancied himself the detective in this instance and genuinely thought he could solve this murder himself. Sadly, though, he did not. Oh, poor Poe. I know. He tried really hard. But he did renew interest in Mary's case a bit. And so we hear from Frederica one last time. Oh, what she have to say now? Here she comes back. In October of 18... Oh, no, sorry, it's November. In November of 1842, Frederica Loss was accidentally shot by one of her sons. Mm. Whoops, shot ya! Oh, those, those rowdies. I know, they're just confirmed rowdies. And Frederica made a startling confession on her deathbed. Oh. She said that the, quote, tall, dark man she'd seen Mary Rogers with in July of 1841 had not been a stranger. Hmm. She knew him. She went on to say that, quote, on the Sunday of Miss Rogers's disappearance, she came to Frederica's house, Mary did, from the city in the company of a young physician Hmm. who undertook to produce for her a premature delivery. Premature delivery was what they called an abortion back then. The procedure had gone wrong, however. Frederica said that after the young doctor left, it became evident that something was not right and Mary bled to death. Desperate to be rid of this awful secret, Frederica had her sons drag Mary's body into the river. After disposing of her body, one of the lost boys had thrown her clothes into a neighbor's pond and then, after having second thoughts, retrieved them and threw them into the woods. Then later he found them Mm. to everyone's surprise. Many argue that this version of the scenario doesn't match Mary's battered body, but doesn't it? Yeah. I'm going to assume that not all these people are totally aware of what a covert abortion was like in 1841, but she could have easily been tied down so she didn't move during the procedure. Yeah. That wasn't uncommon in any surgery back then. She could have struggled to afterwards to get out of the place where she was slowly dying. 
She could have struggled against the doctor who would have then hold her down because, again, they don't let you fight during a surgery, but there's no anesthetic. Yeah. The Lost Boys could have seen her death coming and strangled her to hasten its arrival. We just don't know. And really, like, the fact that she has, like, a ripped-up dress, you could have used portions of that dress for any kind of medical thing. I just, it just seems to me like that could also add up. As for the supposed sexual assault, well, I'm going to assume that all of our listeners know where babies come from and where one might need to dig around to access them. Yeah. According to the Smithsonian, quote, to some, the attribution of Mary's death to a botched abortion made perfect sense. It had been suggested that she and Payne quarreled over an unwanted pregnancy. That's still making it Daniel's fault. My money is on the pregnancy was um, the cigar shop owner. Mm. I think that he got her pregnant. And because she was engaged, wanting to keep that secret, she went off. And he may have known. He may have even paid for it. He may have even arranged it. Right. He didn't intend on killing her. Everything just went wrong. Right. That is my theory, but a lot of people think it was her fiancé. Anyway, back to the Smithsonian. Quote, In the early 1840s, New York City was fervently debating the activities of the known abortionist Madame Restel, who you will all get to hear about next week. Several penny presses had linked Mary Rogers to Madame Restel as well and suggested that her 1838 disappearance, the earlier disappearance, had lasted precisely as long as it would take a woman to terminate a pregnancy in secret and return undiscovered. Mm. Some might also argue that a hastily written suicide note that never saw the light of day could have been a protection against a possible abortion casualty. Mm, That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Curious that. And while that connection was ultimately unsubstantiated, Mary was on the minds of New Yorkers when, in 1845, New York officially criminalized abortion. Mm -hmm. Not only was abortion made illegal, but it was also deemed repugnant and unreportable by the press. So you weren't allowed to talk about it. And if a woman died from an abortion, she would not be front page news. She would be nothing but a dead criminal in the eyes of the law. Wow. So hold your breath and clutch your pearls, fiends, because that is absolutely a dot, dot, dot. And next week, we will tell, talk more about abortion. Mm-hmm. So sadly, that's where this case ends. That's interesting. I mean, but it feels like we, I mean, I guess we don't know for sure. It's. I agree with you in where you're going with that. It feels like we, that is the answer. Yeah. But there are still a huge faction of people who don't accept it. Right. They say, no, the coroner said she was battered. It was definitely a rowdy crowd of guys that grabbed her, raped her, strangled her, and threw her in the river. I'm like, why is that what you want to think? Yeah, because it also doesn't go along with what was, how she was found at the scene. Not according to the guys who found her. Yeah. Then my other point about like the body being beat up is that if right after she died, right after... She was dragged through the prickery woods. Yeah. Wouldn't that do some damage to her body? Yeah, exactly. And then she'd be kind of banged up looking because of that. Mm-hmm. Also, I don't know how much I trust 1841 coroner looking at a body that has been submerged in water to tell me that she definitely died of strangulation. Yeah. Maybe she did. I don't know. Again, like I said, it could have been a mercy killing. It could have been any anything linked to this botched abortion, Mm -hmm. which someone 
said they knew she had. Right. I just don't. I I feel like the signs are there for the appropriate explanation, but if you read them differently, they'll say something else. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that was interesting. Right? Yeah. It's not the story I thought I was going to end up telling when I first looked at it, and that happens to us all of the time. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a more important story. Yeah. Because we also whoever in New York was hiding this felt the need to be like, well, we absolutely can't make it about an abortion. Mm-hmm. That can't be a thing. We can't let people know that. Can't pe- let people know that women get them. And we certainly can't let people know that women die from them. Right. But they did and do all the time. Yeah. When they're not done in a safe medical setting. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we will have more on that next week. Though I will give you guys, anybody who is getting a little prickly about this, the preface that this is not a political debate we're having. Next week, we're not talking about politics. We're not, that's not our thing. Yeah. We are here for science and medicine and history and women. And that's it. Yeah. Just to talk, yeah, like you said, just to talk about the history of it. Mm-hmm. Better what happens when it. there is no access? Yeah. What, what happens to women then? Education is key. Education is key. Really is. Mm-hmm. Which I think is so evident from the way New York reacted to this and to actual information. They were just like, no, that's not right. Right. It was definitely a ruffian mm-hmm. who appeared in the bush. <laughs> no, it wasn't. But you know what? I guess live your dreams. Anyway, toast? Toast. To Mary. Yes. Life was complicated. And I assume sometimes great and sometimes not great. Cheers to Mary. Cheers, Mary. Uh, anybody else you'd like to toast? Um, to Poe. Sure, <laughs> to Poe. Cheers. <laughs> I love a good raven. Making me rhyme in threes. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a new patron. Hooray! Lindsay. Come on down. Lindsay. <laughs> Cheers. She is a best fiend. Thank you, Lindsay. Yes. Thank you. Love your support. And I think that's it for this week. Yeah? Yeah. And if we just wanted our lives back from a scandal-hungry public, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. So hold your breath and clutch your pearls, fiends, because that is absolutely a dot, dot, dot.